This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to Where Did You Get This Number? This is Anthony Salvanto, and it is Thanksgiving week. So this week's big number, 73%. That's the number of Americans who say they'd like to eat turkey on Thanksgiving. The rest say they'd prefer something else. That's from the latest CBS News poll. And yes, we do ask about that sort of thing. 88% say they would eat leftovers for at least a day later. In my view, that's often the best part. Now, if you're gathered around friends and family and maybe dreading whether political arguments might come up, I can assure you at least these are things that Democrats and Republicans, we find, do tend to agree on. Now, speaking of politics, this week we saw the entry into the Democratic race of former Mayor Michael Bloomberg. ...is preparing a record-setting TV advertisement blitz in 24 states. The $31 million ad buy will mainly target states that hold their nominating contest on Super Tuesday or later. $31 million is more than nearly every Democratic candidate has in cash on hand right this minute. Along with Bloomberg's large ad buy across the Super Tuesday states, we'll have to wait and see what impact that buy may have. But the contours of the debate seem to take shape right away. On one hand, it was weather in the minds of some the Democratic Party was heading in the right direction. I have my reservations about the people running and the way they're campaigning and the the promises they're making that they can't fulfill. And on the other hand, it was over money in politics, how it gets raised, how it gets spent, how much gets spent. To build the kind of grassroots foundation that's going to make the difference in 2020. It does not mean billionaires buying elections or just because they are billionaires thinking they can run for president. So for this week, we thought we'd go back to an episode of this podcast where we did an explainer of how money in politics works, along with all those terms that you hear thrown around. Hacks, super PACs, dark money, self-funding, what the law allows and what it all means. Have a listen. Joining us here to talk more about campaign finance is Linda Trent, who is founding partner at 270 Strategies, a Democratic consulting firm, and a CBSN contributor. Linda, welcome. Thank you. Can you break down for us just what exactly a PAC is? PAC stands for Political Action Committee, and there is a category of traditional PAC that is required by law to disclose all of its donors. It does so on a regular basis, a regular schedule throughout the year. And that's typically what people have meant when they've talked about political groups in the past. However, a few years ago, people may be familiar with the Citizens United ruling, which essentially ushered in a new era of different kinds of political groups that 
that were not beholden to the same kinds of disclosure rules. And so depending on how they characterize the way that they were allocating their resources, they might not need to tell you even who their top donors are. You know, it seems to me that early in this race, the candidates are all going around talking about how they're trying to raise money from small donors. The small donor is king. In this case, it feels like it's almost mandatory. Like, it's not just a selling point. If that's true, why is it this year? It's the big irony during the era of Trump that basically anything big is bad. You know, whether you're talking about big donors, big business, big interest groups, they're all perceived as antithetical to being for the little guy. And that, I think, is um, part of the reason you are seeing this desire to project broad-based grassroots support. Is there going to be a rift between Democrats, which says if anybody who does take big money is not going to get the same kind of support? (laughs) Not that long ago, there was the consensus that unilaterally disarming was going to be a challenge for any Democratic candidate um, who was in a a big stakes race. But these days, you're not only getting the very distinct feeling from the Democratic candidates that they don't want to encourage big PACs, don't want to encourage big money influence in their elections. They're even issuing challenges. You've got Elizabeth Warren being very, very upfront about not wanting to to take money from PACs? I don't take corporate PAC money, shoot, I don't take PAC money of any kind. I don't take Washington lobbyist money. I'm not out there sucking up to some guys who are putting together a super PAC to try to help me out. And I'm not spending my time calling wealthy donors and issuing that challenge to others to do the same. Now, candidates, to a certain extent, don't have full control over who's going to wade into the fray and where people are going to spend their money. There are folks out in the world who see power and a need for bundling resources to support their candidate of choice, but that is done legally outside of the purview of the candidate campaigns. Is there anything that the Democrats have done in terms of strategy, in terms of fundraising strategy, in the wake of those changes, in the wake of the Citizens United decision. The most interesting shift, I think, over the last several cycles, and I would say this really started with Barack Obama and all of the hullabaloo around his multi-million person email list and how he really brought people into the democratic process from groups that traditionally had not been, whether that's the younger voters or people from communities of color or certain uh, categories of, of women in different geographies, women in the suburbs in particular. You know, as a part of that, it became clear that It was a winning campaign operation to get more people involved. And that has persisted from him to Bernie Sanders and others that you're seeing that the grassroots donor, this citation about the average amount donated is an important marker to showcase that you have broad based support. And that is likely to translate into support at the ballot box as well. Okay, so I'm fascinated by these lists. Take us inside the campaigns where you're putting these lists together. What is it that makes a small donor valuable? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the way that we think about people as assets to campaigns is along what we describe as a ladder of engagement. And that ladder has different kinds of activities that an individual might engage in if they're interested in a particular race, interested in a particular candidate. So at the low end of the ladder, you have small bar asks. So maybe they open an email. 
And one step above that, maybe they forward that email along to their friends. And then several steps above that, they may open their wallet and contribute to you. But the person that opens their wallet is also the person that is most likely to also want to come in and fill a volunteer shift and help to build out your campaign infrastructure. That is, you know, the way that you're ultimately going to win the campaign. It's why donor lists are really important. Yes, the cash is really important, but it's also what it tells you about the individuals that are engaged in the message that you're delivering to the world and how that might translate into your overall campaign operation. Behind the scenes, do campaigns fight for these lists? Do they fight for donors who can get to that person first if they're if they're so valuable? Well, I wouldn't say that it's a fight necessarily, but there is no modern campaign out there right now, whether it's at the presidential level or the local level, that doesn't understand that their list is very valuable and that they need to guard it. And so campaigns will do list swaps, they will rent each other's lists, but there's just generally the understanding that there's value in that. And if there are ways to collaborate, honestly, I've seen campaigns do it. If there are ways to reach multiple people on different issue areas, for example, overall campaign lists are gold. Do you think that the way the states come up in the, on the primary calendar, of course, there's Iowa, then there's New Hampshire, then on to South Carolina, is part of that at the party level, the desire to keep big money a little bit removed from politics in the sense that if there were larger states going first, it would cost more money to campaign there. You know, I haven't heard anybody within the party structure say things that way per se, but without question, having Iowa and New Hampshire early on in the cycle really shines a spotlight on that one-on-one engagement. How do the candidates perform in what you would consider traditional campaigning? face-to-face, whether you're going to these fairs or you're having these smaller group gatherings of individuals that you're you're making the pitch to, that is just part and parcel of how you campaign in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. When you get on to Texas with its, you know, nine major media markets and California with many, many more media markets, that's when that cash really comes into play and could be a differentiator in, in terms of setting up certain individuals that are in the field to be top tier uh, compared to others. And I don't know that that ultimately serves the the democratic process if we aren't able to hear from folks who may not have the cash in the beginning um, and, and what their vision happens to be. From what you've seen, are there more small donors really giving to campaigns today than there used to be? Or is it the same group of small donors who are kind of just circulating the money and maybe just giving to different candidates than than they used to? I think that while the overall number uh, has probably stayed the same in terms of the the amount of money raised overall since the kind of high watermark of a billion dollars a couple of presidential cycles ago, that figure has roughly remained the same. I think that the makeup of where that cash comes from has changed dramatically. You know, you hear a lot of discussion about um, first-time donors who are just giving five dollars. They're giving, you know, whatever they can, but they feel like the stakes are so high that it is so urgent for them to get involved and make some sort of a difference, even if they don't have the ability to get out on the doors or hop into a phone bank. I think that people are giving at levels that we just haven't seen before. 
you know, at the same time, the technology has made it so much easier for people to give as well. I mean, you've got the companies like ActBlue that are frequently releasing their stats on how much cash flowed through their platform. And these days, campaigns, you know, when you give them that $5 amount or what have you, that information gets saved. So the next time you see maybe another candidate or the same candidate, your info is already up. So all you have to do is lightly touch the button on your phone and you're giving again. Linda Tran, founding partner at 270 Strategies and CBS News contributor. Thank you, Linda. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. So hold on a second. You know, I wondered, for most folks who aren't billionaires, and of course most of us aren't, why would somebody give over their hard-earned money to a political campaign in the first place? So I called professor of political science Michael Barber at Brigham Young University, who studies donors uh, to campaigns and campaign finance. Hello, this is Mike. Michael, this is Anthony Salvanto at CBS. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, So I asked him, Michael, what's the psychology behind somebody giving over a small amount to a campaign, 10, 20, 50 dollars? And he had a fun analogy. Uh, The way that I think about it is they're really buying uh, kind of participation in the process. Imagine it's similar to the reason that people buy tickets to sporting events, to football games, to baseball games, that sort of thing. They enjoy being in the stadium. They enjoy watching the players play. There's no expectation that me sitting in the stands cheering on my team is actually going to make the difference. It's not going to, my cheering is not going to push that team over the edge and help them win. Uh, But it's still really fun to be there. Since Michael's been through all the studies on campaign donations, I asked him whether the people who gave money believed something different than the people who don't. Donors tend to be wealthier, more white, older, have more ideological views. And what I mean by that is the typical American has kind of a grab bag of issue positions. Uh, Most Americans are liberal on some issues, conservative on others, whereas donors tend to be much more consistent. They tend to hold mostly liberal positions or mostly conservative positions. They're much more ideological in that way. And then maybe the biggest question, how do these donors impact the way the campaign goes or the kinds of candidates that we get? Candidates know that they're going to raise millions of dollars from these small donors. And they know that these donors are much more liberal or much more conservative, depending on the party. Uh, And so what that does is it creates incentives for candidates to take more liberal or more conservative positions. 
than the general electorate or the general public might have. So we're talking now with Carrie Levine, who is deputy politics editor and senior reporter at the Center for Public Integrity. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So right off the bat, Carrie, you know, when I watch political campaigns, I rarely see anybody get up on the stump and say, I've got the most big money donors of anybody else. <laughs> what, what they usually say is, I've got a lot of small donors. This is a grassroots operation. This is for the people. Are more small donors giving to political campaigns now than they used to be? You know, on the Democratic side, we can say absolutely. For instance, in the 2018 congressional elections, Democratic congressional candidates just about tripled the amount that they pulled in in small dollar contributions compared to the same point in 2014, which is a huge jump. Republicans haven't yet matched the increase, but they too have some bright spots with small donors. The party committees have traditionally done well, and President Trump really appeals to small donors. When we hear all these jargon words thrown around, what's the difference between a PAC and a super PAC? There's two differences. One is you can give a super PAC an unlimited amount of money, and there are limits on how much you can give to a PAC. So why would anybody want to be a PAC instead of a super PAC? Because candidates can control PACs in a way that they can't control super PACs. So that's when you see an ad out there that a candidate may or may not have to answer for. And That's they say, right. well, I didn't I didn't really produce that one. It was somebody sort of on my behalf. That's right. And you saw candidates like President Trump actually take the extra step during the 2016 election of writing to the Federal Election Commission and saying, look, this super PAC or that super PAC is not associated with our campaign. And then what is a bundler? I think the image that comes to people's heads is the guy from Monopoly with a big sack of cash handing it over to a candidate. And so at some basic level, it's someone who can bring in other donors who can say, hey, look, I I can bring in 20 people or 50 people. I'm bundling this amount that's coming through me to you. And it's all legal. It's all individuals giving within the individual contribution limits. But somebody is a nexus. And finding donors is always a challenge. Is social media and the Internet making it easier for individuals to get involved and donate money these days? In a lot of ways, yes. And I think what you see is candidates who are finding ways to engage those donors who may not have participated in the past. You see people doing that through social media, through the internet. You see all these uh, emails from campaigns that say, just sign my petition or take this poll and tell us what you think. And so those sorts of solicitations are often followed by a request for cash, or at the very least, they're getting your information so they can come back to you. That's list building. And so those efforts have gotten increasingly sophisticated. You've got Facebook ads. You've got Google ads. You've got all kinds of prospecting. On the Republican side, that's been, in a lot of cases, less energetic, with exceptions. And you still see a lot of reliance on direct mail and telemarketing and that kind of thing. In the 2015-2016 election cycle, Ben Carson really brought in a ton of new donors, appealed to a lot of people giving recurring small dollar amounts. And a lot of those people were people who heard about him through his work in the evangelical community, people who had read his books and were fans, and who then came in and responded to his 
his solicitations. And has it made it easier then for a candidate who doesn't have a pre-existing network of, say, ties to wealthy communities or a business community to then go out and get those kinds of donations? Absolutely. Carson's a great example of that on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, you've seen someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really build an incredible fundraising machine because of the way that she appeals to small dollar donors. Every time we see a candidate in a district, sometimes a state, talking about there's outside money pouring into my opponent's campaign, have the changes in campaign finance, either law or the increase in social media and and technology, given rise to an increase in people giving money across state lines or across district lines? I absolutely think that they have. And this is something that I looked at during the 2018 elections. I wanted to know where the money was coming from. And it was really fascinating because the small dollar donor data we were able to get showed that donors in California and New York together contributed roughly a third of the dollars that flowed through Act Blue, the main Democratic fundraising platform, to House and Senate candidates that cycle. You saw regular people looking around saying, well, you know, I'm in a safe district. I, I don't really have a race that I can get very engaged with here. But man, this candidate in Kansas, Sharice Davids, or, or this candidate in Kentucky, Amy McGrath, they need the dollars. I'm going to send some money. When we talk about fundraising for a candidate and we use it as a measure of their viability, is that a good measure? I think what you have is a situation where uh, what you're really asking me is, is money a proxy for enthusiasm? Is it a proxy for support? And I think that goes to why small dollar donors right now are the bell of the ball. Because everyone wants to say, look, I'm running for president and I have a million people who care enough about my bid, who are invested enough in me to give money, even if it's a small amount. I have popular support. Then there's the other thing about money, which is it spends, right? Campaigns have to spend money. They're going to buy ads and they're going to hire people and they need to turn out the vote and they have expenses. And if you don't have enough money to get across a certain viability threshold, you can't really run a great campaign. So it's fair to look at money for a couple of really important reasons. At the same time, is money everything? Sometimes it just can't turn the tide. You had a situation where during the congressional election, Senator Heidi Heitkamp outraised her opponent by multiples. Uh, You know, there was a period after she announced she would vote against confirming Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court when she raised $12.5 million in 17 days, which for a Senate campaign is just crazy money. When you talk about elections in North Dakota, you're talking about a federal election where between 250,000 and 350,000 people vote. So she finished the campaign with millions left in the bank, and she still lost because at the end of the day, the North Dakota voters voted for her opponent, and no amount of money she raised was probably going to change that. Has it become easier or harder to know who is giving to a campaign and also who is influencing a campaign for you, the person covering the beat? It's an interesting question because in some ways it's never been easier. On the Democratic side, at least, the use of Act Blue means we have small dollar donor data we didn't used to have and we're able to look at that. The Republicans are trying to start their own equivalent that would also provide more data about small dollar donors. Super PACs, in theory, are transparent, but we also live in an era of what's called dark money, 
which means nonprofits are spending money on elections without revealing their funding sources, and reporters have to follow a trail of breadcrumbs to try and figure out where the money is coming from. Dark money sounds so ominous. What exactly is it? That's when people are able to give to nonprofits who spend money on elections and don't have to disclose their funding sources. So an entity can spend millions of dollars on, say, TV ads, and it's very hard to have accountability on who's behind them. And that's when we see a TV ad, and at the end, some narrator says, you know, paid for by the, I'm making this up, Committee for a Brighter Blue Sky. There probably is one. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, and that's it. That's all we know. That's right. right? And we, the restriction on nonprofits is typically that they can't spend the majority of their resources on political activity, but they can spend some. And so depending on how much they're able to raise and spend, it can be considerable amounts of money. And not pro- and then sometimes you have a situation where uh, one group gives to another group that gives to another group, say through a limited liability company or another pass-through that's hard to penetrate, and you again have a lack of transparency there, even if the super PAC says it got a million dollars from ABCDEFGLLC. Carrie Levine from the Center for Public Integrity, Deputy Federal Politics Editor and Senior Reporter there. Carrie, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. One thing I am thankful for on a professional level is to get to work with this great team at CBS Radio. For Alan Pang, Maeve Burke, and everybody here who helps put this podcast together, and most of all, to you for listening and tuning in. We will be back next week, and as we hit the home stretch toward the first primaries, we will turn our attention to topics on the youth vote, on the primary calendar, we will dive deep into issues in South Carolina and take a bigger look at how polling will work going forward. Until then, if you are on the move, safe travels, wherever you are, wishing you and yours a very happy Thanksgiving, and we'll talk next week. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 